You are listening to a Nerd Room podcast production. We the Nerd. Bunch of nerds. Hey everyone and welcome to the Nerd Room. We talk all things Star Wars, Marvel, DC, and beyond. This episode number 327, we're discussing Jurassic World Dominion and Miss Marvel. I'm your host, Tim. And I'm Carlos. We've got a double shot review this week in the Nerd Room with Jurassic World Dominion hitting theaters this past weekend. Both of us going and consuming what could have been, or maybe is, the biggest film of the summer of 2022. And we've also got the debut of the next Disney Plus Marvel MCU show in Miss Marvel. Shows are coming fast and furious. We also have Stranger Things going on in the background, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Strange New World. There's so much content to discuss, but this week is going to be solely focused on episode one of Miss Marvel. And of course, that big ending of the saga film in the Jurassic franchise with Dominion. Carlos! How are you feeling about this double shot review this evening? I'm here for it, and I'm glad that I'm uh, no longer the the flag bearer for our reviews here. So we can uh, <laughs> the pressure's off a little bit, and we can just kind of stroll through these uh, these offerings from this past weekend. And yeah, it it's insane to me how dense the uh, nerd space is with just all the crazy shows and movies hitting and once we hit the back half of summer with the shows movies and then the big video game releases going on it's uh yeah need to win the lottery so i can quit my job and have time for all this cool stuff that would be absolutely ideal because i'm feeling the same way i'm feeling a lot of pressure and i'm very far behind on a lot of things and making that time has become difficult the fact even that we have two major Disney Plus shows running concurrently with Obi-Wan and Miss Marvel is wild to me. But that goes to show how much content is actually coming out because we're going to get into She-Hulk, we're going to get into Groot, we're going to get into all this other stuff. Multiverse of Madness dropping onto that platform. Thor Love and Thunder coming up here in just a couple of weeks. And June is almost over, July is on its way. But this week, we got to focus just in the here and now, and that's Jurassic World Dominion. And Miss Marvel. So, guys, we're going to do this like we normally do or like we have been doing our reviews. We're just going to shoot back and forth on these little franchises here, on these big franchises, maybe I should say. And we're going to kick it off with Miss Marvel. These are going to be spoiler discussions. So, if you've not seen the first episode of Miss Marvel or Jurassic World Dominion, please take a pause, go check them out, and then come back and hear our thoughts on these. Now, Miss Marvel, this is what, the sixth, maybe? live action mcu show on disney plus these things are starting to really build out but here we are with a brand new superhero a brand new concept a brand new character being introduced into the mcu with miss marvel this follows on from moon knight which was something that both you and i were eh about it was maybe one of the weaker outings by the mcu in this disney plus space but my opinion here they come back firing on all cylinders with Miss Marvel. I absolutely adored this first episode of Miss Marvel. I would say probably the best first episode in my opinion. Me, I have to go back and maybe revisit Loki episode 1, but this one I was in absolute awe. I watched it with my 7-year-old. She freaking loved it. There's so much to discuss here, Carlos, but I got to get your first thoughts here. I do not know how you reacted to this first episode of Miss Marvel. So let me have it. Let me hear it. Yeah. Well, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I try out all the Marvel Disney Plus stuff with the utmost optimism and enthusiasm. And I usually walk away from the first episodes kind of, well, yeah, it didn't live up to all the hyperbole out there. And then by the time we get to the end of the show, I think Loki's the only one that I didn't think was utterly forgettable uh, by the time all was said and done. That said, Miss Marvel is by far yes. my favorite thing that I've seen on Disney Plus in the MCU space. Like, it was just to call it charming would be an understatement. Mm -hmm. And it was just wonderful. And I think what made it wonderful was. A, it had its own unique style and oh. flavor and vision to it. You could really see 
uh, the director's sensibilities and their uh, choices shining through in this one. And also, ironically, the fact that it was so disconnected from the greater MCU was such an asset to it because you just got to enjoy the story of this young lady and her family and her school life. And it just felt like a traditional um, kind of Disney or Nickelodeon type show where it's a bit of a coming of age story and it just happens to f- take place in the same world as all these other um Marvel superhero-y type things happening. And then they tack on the fact, like her journey with her uh, getting powers and all this stuff moving forward. So yeah, I I loved it. And like, honestly, I'm almost hoping that there's no big bad or anything like that. It's just like six episodes of Kamala kind of finding her way with balancing the expectations on her as a student, as a daughter, and as a superhero. And, you know, we'll have to get into some superhero hijinks, but I hope that they're pretty minor and that her involvement in them is uh, very periphery and we can just kind of spend time with her because she's honestly the most enjoyable part and the whole daydreaming thing that they've worked into it, a la Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Like, man, it, it got me super excited and that the directors from that episode are the guys doing Batgirl, like it it massively supercharged my anticipation Mm -hmm. for that property because if Disney let them have a bit of a leash, like I can just imagine what they got to do with Warner brothers and it'll be amazing to see what they bring to Batgirl. But yeah, as far as Miss Marvel girl goes, like I loved it. I, like I've said before, like I read all the early books with her uh, so couple, like probably five or six years worth of her comics. And I kind of liked what they did with the origin of the powers and whatnot. Like Agreed. I, I don't love the powers, so to speak, because I do, even the way they played in the show, I do think that the, uh, body morphing thing would play really well with how she reacts to it and just trying to control things. But that they come from these bracelets that come from her grandmother and that will get to have a bit of an origin. And there seems to be a connection between Kamala and her grandmother, as far as how they behave and uh, where their headspace is at, that I think will be cool to explore going forward. But yeah, it's like, it, it's my favorite thing that they've done. Honestly, it might even be my favorite thing of phase four outside of Spider-Man No Way Home. I think it is quite frankly, like her and Peter shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Like everything you said, the sensibility of the directors, the stylistic choices that they made in this, everything from as she's walking, like you said, Diary Wimpy Kid is a really nice way to put it. As she's walking, you're seeing things come up on buildings. Even when she's texting, it's coming up in the background on the store and her relationship and the chemistry between her and her little buddy there. The idea that, like you said, it's disconnected from the MCU, but it's also really organically weaved in certain elements of it with the starting little montage and her idolizing Captain Marvel and the Avengers being a big thing that people are surrounding themselves with in a con sense. I like that piece of it. It's not so over the head battle of New York, this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's just a girl that looks up to these people as true superheroes, as role models and her trying to navigate her way through that inside of a family that is a bit more strict. Like we've seen this, kind of i won't say trope but we've seen this relationship um portrayed in many different ways there's a show called never have i ever on netflix it is really good and it does very similar things with an indian family and i i just think like you said it's so endearing it's so just the the way that it all the everything is delivered in that sense it just makes you want more of it i remember stopping it pausing it halfway through and asking my daughter do you understand everything and seeing that there was like 25 minutes left in the episodes and thinking like, yes, I want so much more of this. It's it's different, but it feels familiar. It has everything I think that you want. It's uplifting. It doesn't hit you over the head with anything. It's just all right there for you. And it's just a very enjoyable time. I had a smile across my face for the entirety of the episode. I know very little about this character, but I'm already hooked on who she is and how what they're doing here. I think one of the things coming into this that you and I wanted was exactly that. Let's spend time with her and her family, her navigating through this life 
of being imbued or having some sort of power set thrust upon her and how she's going to deal with that in her day to day. I truly don't think that there's going to be a big bad here. They do tease that there's a post credit. They do tease someone is coming for her. They've identified her as, as a person of interest, if you will. And so there may be someone coming for the bracelet, might be someone coming for her as a superhero or someone with powers. But we don't need someone up there that's saying, oh, I'm this, and she needs to fight him implicitly. This can just be about her navigating through this new set of powers. And I like the bracelets. I think it's cool. It's connected to your her-, her heritage, like you said, her grandma. There's a story to tell there of something a bit deeper and meaningful to to her as a person and as a character. Yeah, it was cool. I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Like, I was pretty checked out on everything that they're doing like outside of spider-man and like mm-hmm. yeah this one grabbed me i i had my suspicions that it'd be good but it, it just goes to show like this show really flew under the radar and you know coming out on the same day as obi-wan was coming out if this was something of a, a more marquee brand i don't think that they would have done that i don't think they would have released Falcon and the Winter Soldier no, episode one on not. the same day as Obi-Wan. So, yeah, I, I'm happy that it's thriving and hopefully this buys us more of this type of fare in this space with, you know, your non-traditional heroes. And, yeah, I'm I'm here for it, right? So mm-hmm. this gets me excited for Batgirl. It gets me excited for Blue Beetle. And, yeah, it's going to be a cool time going forward. Yeah, and one of the things, too, that I just want to bring up, just jumping back over to the, the stylistic choice and and really the sensibilities of the directors that they put out there, is we talked last week or the week before about Obi-Wan and not feeling polished. This one here feels theatrical to me. I don't know if it's a lot yeah. of practical sets or if it's uh, they're not using a lot of CGI in it. This felt big. This felt grand. This felt like they were in Jersey City. This felt very much like a theatrical experience to me this could be or is movie quality to me yeah well they were shooting outside in the real world mm-hmm. like be it in toronto or new york or wherever right they, she doesn't live in a in a very recognizable spot kind of thing so really they could have filmed it anywhere because it's mm-hmm. just kind of uh, suburbia type of big city suburbia so yeah you can see that it just looks and feels more real and Mm -hmm. gives everything a bit more agency so yeah i I don't know maybe the the days of the volume (laughs) might need to get put on the shelf for a bit yeah it's 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 so interesting because and we'll talk a little bit about this into the dominion piece of it but i don't know if i can i'm feeling that a lot more and i'm just the volume, I think, is a great thing, and it can be used, I think, to to great value. But over-dependence on it, I think, is going to potentially become a problem down the road. Because Obi-Wan feels like it's shot on a stage, whereas you take Miss Marvel, which, when you look at economies of scale of the actual settings, Miss Marvel, to me, feels bigger than Obi-Wan. Yeah. The way it's oh, shot. Oh, for sure. For sure. Even just like the silly little driving scene right where Mm -hmm. she's in a parked car yeah it it just has so much more weight and verisimilitude than you know four episodes of kenobi thus far yeah (laughs) yeah it's 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 pretty wild it's pretty wild it goes very far to show the value of being out there and shooting on set you know there's cost and there's covid and all that stuff to deal with right there's still we're still feeling the ramifications of that some of this stuff was shot over a year ago or in some cases two years ago and so we are seeing that but i think that this show is going to go a very long way to not only demonstrating like the value of that practical effect but also that these unique stories are i think was driving or could drive a lot more engagement you know, my, my seven-year-old, I turned to her at the end. I said, honest opinion. I said, you do not have to watch it one more episode with me if you don't like this. Do you want to watch more of this? And her first thing was like, yes. I don't think it, she is as amped up as she will be for, say, a Batgirl or something to that effect. But she saw the girl was the main character, and she wanted just more of it. She liked the drawing, the, the kind of the fantasy aspects layering on top of the real world. 
Like, I think that was very engaging for her. So again, if you're looking at broadening, diversifying your audience in general, I think this is a show that's going to do it more so than even your Moon Knight or even like your Falcon and Winter Soldier. I think you drew a lot of the MCU crowd in, but are you drawing in, you know, a younger generation? Are you drawing in a much more diverse crowd is to grow that brand, right? You know, it's a humongous brand and I don't think they're suffering from that. But I often look over the fence at DC and I've chronicled it here so many times on the podcast about how impressed I am about how they're diversifying their slate and encouraging multiple avenues of entry for different types of people, people seeking things for the first time, young girls, young boys, you know, whatever, right? And this is kind of, you know, Marvel's done a little bit of it, but not a ton of it. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this it definitely feels like something that if you've never watched anything in the MCU before, you could click Miss Marvel and you could watch it, you could understand it and enjoy it. And if you want more of it, great. And if you wanted to just experience that, that's fine too. Which, yeah, it just it feels special and it doesn't feel disposable and it mm-hmm. it feels like there's a real heart and a vision behind it which i can't say for a ton of the phase four stuff so like shang chi a bit spider-man and this one are those are the gold standards i think for me thus far with this last little bit from the mcu so yeah i'm ecstatic at how impressed i was with this show like yeah i loved it yeah me too i love it and it's just one more thought here before we transition over to dominion the the point that you brought there about this being special and you know drawing people in and all that this that opening montage i think will drive more people back to phase three phase one two and three films about wanting to be in the know with camilla khan or kamala khan than any of the other shows you know you're talking about getting people to go back to experience thanos experience endgame experience what she's talking about and what she's in love with that to me, I'm like already was excited to think of thinking about, yeah, let's, I, let's maybe my daughter wants to go back and watch that stuff to get in the know with her. Where all the other shows and all the other phase four stuff, it's it doesn't really drive you backwards. And I know it's a forward point narrative and they're trying to skew away from the infinity saga and all that, but this this one felt more inherently connected than any of the other episodes without beating over the head with with canon or you know, this is how this piece fits in and it's part of the grander story and narrative, right? This just felt like a nice little supplemental chunk to what was the infinity saga like the fallout from it right your your epilogue of it all yeah well it just it was just kind of building her fandom kind of thing right so it it wasn't it's it's because it wasn't in service of the mcu it was just in developing your character and that's why Mm -hmm. we got that piece right so i think that's why it works so well yeah yeah definitely definitely all right man well let's head over to our spoiler discussion of jurassic world dominion now, this was one of my, and I believe your most anticipated summer films of 2022. This saw a year delay. This was supposed to come out a year ago in this time frame in 2021. But of course, because of the pandemic, it was delayed out a full year. And this had a reasonably sized opening, $145 million opening. So it just falls shy of The Fallen Kingdom's 148 and well behind, of course, the $208 million that Jurassic World did, this you know, reintroduction to the Jurassic franchise all the way back in 2015. This movie is set about four or five years, I believe, after Fallen Kingdom. And so we get a look at what the world is living with. And that is with dinosaurs all over the place, all over the world. We've got poachers. We've got illegal breeding. We've got dinosaurs living in the wild. It does a really good job integrating things like the Battle of Big Rock and the previous three films. And, of course, the original trilogy films with our original cast coming back in a major way into this. But Carlos... Talk to me about your very first impressions of Jurassic World's Dominion. Yeah, I to be honest, like I didn't know what quite to expect because um, you know the elephant in the room will be the reviews that came mm-hmm. out, and this thing got eviscerated. Like I, th- I have no idea what it looks like now, but there's no audience scores when I looked at it before heading in and I think it was sitting at like a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes type of thing. So I was like, oh shoot, like um, maybe they did fumble the ball with the big trilogy capper and the the saga closer. 
And honestly, when we were going, my one hope was that my daughter really loved it because she's a massive Jurassic Park fan, Jurassic World actually almost more so. And, uh, you know, like my, my wife on the way home stopped at a different theater chain who gets all the crazy theater <laughs> premiums and came home with the, the most insanely sized tin bucket with blue splashed all over it from the theater and uh, the concession stuff. But like, that's, that's the level of fandom that she was. So I was like, ah, shoot, I, I don't know what this is going to be, but I just hope that she enjoys it. And we sat down and like, maybe a third, two thirds. Of, uh, probably, yeah. A third halfway through the movie, I turned to her and I was just like, I really freaking love this movie. Mm-hmm. Like just, I, I couldn't even wait till the end to share my thoughts with her. But uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, to kind of jump to my post uh, viewing self, like I really tried to put myself uh, in the, in the eyes of the people that didn't like the movie and, kind of think like why and why were people coming away disappointed and like not only critics but also people on my social media who I interact with just you know regular users like you or I and um like I I do appreciate that if you went into this movie wanting to see the the dinosaurs in the wild and kind of an expansion of the battle of big rock stuff and the things that they had teased and all the um the dino tracker bits with the cell phone footage and like people seeing the brachiosaur in the forest and stegosaurus on a roadway and all that kind of stuff like i can see where you'd be disappointed with that but for me and especially having just revisited the book like Mm -hmm. i thought it was the perfect capper to the sega because with the book and I fully admit, like, um, my perspective on this movie is going to be a little skewed. So, um, you you know, if you disagree with what I'm saying here as a listener, like, you got to appreciate where um, my mindset is coming from, having gone back and revisited the books and having a love affair with these movies. Like, the whole genetic manipulation within big business is a massive piece and like 20% plus of the original book. Like the whole if not more, thing. If not more. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And like, honestly, like the reason Jurassic Park from Michael Crichton's pen came into existence, as John Hammond explains, it is like genetic manipulation is big business and all these different companies were chasing it. But John Hammond went after dinosaurs and entertainment because it's not regulated. Mm -hmm. And that's why he didn't go into health sciences and into agriculture was because he could make big money with um, in the entertainment industry. And there was no red tape. There was no types of controls. He he could kind of do whatever he wanted to do. And then you had all these other companies like Biosyn, which was in the original uh, movie and the original book kind of work in the background and trying to steal his intellectual property. So I, I do love that they built on that and kind of went back to that original soul of Jurassic Park, which was the ramifications of man dealing with genetic power. Um, and then going back and kind of spot watching Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom, like they seeded this through the entire trilogy of the and Camp world. Cretaceous builds on this as well. Yeah, and Camp Cretaceous too, um, in a big way, especially in the last season, season and a half. But uh, yeah, I I think they did a rock star job. I can appreciate why people looking for the dinosaurs and humans trying to coexist story will be disappointed. But at the same time, like. <sighs> Like, they gave it to you in the marketing stuff, which is maybe not fair. Um, But it wasn't just trailers, right? It was like, go to the website and you can watch all this stuff or, you know, watch things like the Battle of Big Rock. And I kind of tried to put my foot in that shoe. And I don't know how much of a compelling story you could get out of just... 
Yeah, like unless you're going to do an anthology movie where it's like you have two hours of these mini stories of different characters in different places dealing with dinosaurs. Um, I, I don't know how you tell a coherent story. No, and, that, and that's, you, that's that's my thoughts on that one too, man. Like I don't think there is a film out of that. You run into a wall very, very quickly. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the marketing and all that, the thing I liked about it, it put you in the mindset that you needed to be in inside of the film when you walk in. And so that they don't have to spend a ton of time. You get a lot of imagery and you get a lot of what it looks like both at the start of the end of the film. But you, there's there's no this was what happened in the last five years and 25, 30 minutes spent on that, right? And so you get that as the story is progressing. But yeah, like you said, you can't have a film that's just people dealing with stegosauruses in their backyard, mm -hmm. right? We got to get to the chasing. We got to get to the moments that you, that you have in these Jurassic films. And like you said, I'm right there with you on having, again, also revisited the book just like you on Audible the whole idea that genetic power is the threat, you know, Dotson is technically like the, the big bad guy, but the genetic power is the underlying fundamental theme inside of this. And it ties so well with everything that's gone on. The dinosaurs in the sense are just kind of a means to telling a story where the genetic power ultimately through the locusts is kind of the big MacGuffin inside of this. And there's a line directly from the book that Malcolm says in this movie, or it's paraphrased somewhat, about genetic power being the next step from the from atomic power, right? Mm -hmm. And the whole prologue to the first book is about this exact thing, about the use of genetic power as a business, but as being this uncontrollable piece of science and that people have, I think Malcolm says in the first movie, you're standing on the shoulder of giants and doing this without thinking about or you were so worried about if you could do it, never stop the thought if you should do it. Yeah. And well, so yeah. It's and a lot of that. Yeah. And I, to put myself in, because I do it with Star Wars all the time where I'm like, well, you can't talk about the book stuff because not everybody's experienced the books. It's a bit different because they're telling different stories in that mm -hmm. franchise from what you see on the screen. But even for this, like they lace that in to the very first movie and the first film has a ton of stuff through Ian Malcolm about the perils of tampering with the genetic manipulation. And then granted, The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 don't have a ton of it, but Jurassic World absolutely does. And it shows Dr. Wu... And the whole story with the Indominus Rex is that you kind of um, spit in the face of Mother Nature and you're just making these creatures for the sake of making them, but you're not paying attention to uh, socializing them properly and nurturing them properly. And that's kind of where Blue's narrative and her connection to Owen pays off and it's not just something to sell action figures with so you have that in Jurassic World and it's very simple in that movie but then it yeah. really really builds in Fallen Kingdom and you know we'll even leave Camp Cretaceous on the side but in Fallen Kingdom like they have a ton of stuff with that very theme and like the ethics of whether or not they should keep the dinosaurs alive and the movie opens with Malcolm kind of saying like this is your one get-out-of-jail-free card from this horrible experiment that you decided to play with. And if we just let nature take its course and wipe out the dinosaurs, we're kind of in a better place because we should have never done it to begin with. And so then we move forward to seeing what happens when people don't do that because of a profit motive. The dinosaurs are saved in Fallen Kingdom. And you get to see the proliferation of um, that genetic power in now nefarious hands all over the place. And like really with Biasin and that locust sub story, you don't have to look further than your gas station charging you $2 a liter plus for gas to show what happens when big business wants to control the day-to-day -day lives of regular people. Mm -hmm. And that 
regular people don't really matter to them. Like it doesn't matter if you can't have wheat to get bread made so then people can eat. Uh, it's about the bias in corporation being able to control the food chain and uh, rake in record profits, right? And they built all that stuff into the movie and they talk about these things. So yeah, I thought it was a pretty intelligent narrative that they baked into the core of this thing. Yeah, and one and, of the other things too that they do, do touch on on Fallen Kingdom is the ethical leap between doing it to animals and now doing it to humans Wait, with the clone. Yes. And I found that they, they improved the clone story, the human clone story in Dominion by making it less about the father wanting to clone the daughter and more about the, the I think it, they've kind of retconned this a little bit, I think to make mm-hmm. it a bit more clear, but with the, her being the actual mother and her tampering with the DNA in a similar fashion that they did in Jurassic Park 1, right? Where they're filling in code with different different DNA and fixing things. Right. And so it bridges that like you're tampering with nature, you're doing things and there's knock on effects because of that. And the ethical dilemma behind, do you do that? If you're improving life, do you do that if you're making things better? But then what are the unintended consequences of that? And you see that through the locust story. I thought the locust, like that story, that sub story inside of this giant dinosaur film was a really cool way to draw attention to that, what is a huge arc inside of the world series and even inside of the Jurassic series itself without explicitly being about the dinosaurs again, right? Mm -hmm. The dinosaurs are there to show consequences and the locusts ramp that up, but make it more so about this is now a global problem. Like the dinosaurs, right? You could, you could really see through, okay, we can fix this, you know, by capturing them or putting them in, you know, inside of these mountains or whatever. Like there's ways to get around this, but this becomes a global problem. Like you said, really starts to, to bring up and flesh out this underlying story that they've been telling about really the ethics and the moral dilemma of genetic manipulation. Yeah, no, and I thought it was I thought it was wise and I thought the movie was paced really well, like they never get bogged down in that side of the story too far. Um I did think it was interesting that our legacy characters are attached to that. Mhm. But at the same time, it made sense that they would be, well, that they would want to distance themselves from dinosaurs coming out of their experience in Jurassic Park, right? And for Owen and Claire, it'd be different. And they had a good reason to be distanced from the Locust storyline because um, Claire was already a bit of a dinosaur crusader in Fallen Kingdom. And then Owen... And her responsible for looking after Maisie. So they can't really be in that space. And they were living off the grid, John Connor style. So yeah, I I thought it made sense. I I, I do appreciate why people might've been turned off by A, the Locust storyline and B, the legacy characters, like your Jurassic Park characters being the ones driving that one forward. But at the same time, I do think that you get the most compelling, richest story out of that. And I think those actors just have a bit more agency to really sell that side of the yeah. the story as well. So, Well, and I, I think it makes sense to me, at least Malcolm, to be the one pointing at this again and being the guest lecturer and being the one that draws attention to this in a major way and bringing in someone that he trusts that has, has switched fields that has experience in this arena. And then Alan just being someone that's kind of tagging along because he has a long lasting love or affinity for Ellie Sattler. Like to me that, that felt relatively organic. Yes. You are kind of shoehorning in legacy characters because you're finishing off this franchise, but it felt like a reasonable path to get them back in. And also the intersection of the original cast and the world cast makes sense to me, right? And using Maisie as the inherent link between them, them picking her up halfway through. You know what I mean? It's not like they're coming together, running away from dinosaurs. Like this this story, at least the human side of it, is about something completely different than dinosaurs. And then you just have dinosaurs chasing everyone on the other side of it, right? Because like the yeah. MacGuffin for Owen and Claire is Maisie. And Alan and Ellie and Malcolm is about the locusts. Like, none of it is truly about the dinosaurs. They become supplemental pieces to the story, which I kind of liked. 
Well, yeah, and like the most telling piece of that is Blue, how she just bookends the yeah. movie after being the star of the other ones. Mm-hmm. But it's because it made no sense for her to be kind of running around all over the place with them. So yeah. I, I did appreciate the restraint with that character. I loved how you had the Ramsey Cole um I really character. liked him, by the way. He was awesome. Yeah, he was cool, and I liked how he was he was kind of your ultimate hero because he's the guy that brought Malcolm in, mm-hmm. knowing that he would engage with Ellie Sattler, understanding that there's eyes all over um, Biasin and what people are doing and whatnot, and Ellie's establishes working in that um, agriculture field. In fact, she's a botanist. She's not a paleontologist yeah. in the first one, right? She's a paleobotanist, and so it makes sense that she would kind of move towards, um, you know, the the farming and agriculture side of the world, and then, yeah, that she drags... Alan along, like you said, there was no reason for him to come along other than his his affection for her and yeah. the fact that she wanted to get the the band back together. So mm-hmm. that yeah, it was it was totally fine. It was totally fine. Like I I did find it interesting that we do have a Jurassic World now, and the climax kind of falls back into let's put humans in this small contained area park or in this case of biosphere with dinosaurs in it and yeah. see if they can survive the gauntlet but that said like i i loved the stuff in the bias in um biosphere i guess for yeah. lack of a better term like i, I well, thought it was pretty and, cool and I, the films themselves like you said about bringing people back into and into a familiar setting where I like the way you put it. Like, there's a, a dino gauntlet they have to run through. Like, but that is that is just the franchise, right? Like, it's hard mm-hmm. to escape that piece of it. Well, also showing off the dinosaur aspect. Like, they're the spectacle that people are coming to see, you know. And as much as in the first movie, they talk about the Indominus being they have to continue to escalate because people have become tired of seeing dinosaurs. It's the same thing in these movies. They have to show us new, different dinosaurs and different ways they can chase people to bring people back. We don't want to see the T-Rex just breaking out of a fence again, right? You know, the raptors are in this, but they're all jacked up raptors. And you get to see some really cool set pieces with new and also legacy dinosaurs in different settings. And that's really what this is all about. Like, ultimately, yes, you get back down to, you know, this apocalyptic feel with the locust meteor shower and everyone being herded back to a single point and running away from dinosaurs. But that's that's the part of the DNA, if we can bring it back to the genetic piece of it, of the Jurassic franchise. Yeah, well, and I love the Locust Meteor Shower because it was very, like, obviously he's trying to channel that imagery of the end of the era of the dinosaurs, yes, right? Exactly, With the yeah. media strike <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But it felt woven into the movie and it, and it felt natural. It wasn't like he set that up just so he could have that set piece. This wasn't, let's keep the cops in the sewer because I want to have a Civil War style confrontation in The Dark Knight Rises. Like, it's not that. Like, that always felt super clunky. And it's like, Christopher Nolan, all due respect, you were just practicing for Dunkirk with <laughs> setting that scene up that way. But with this, it was like, yeah, I get what you wanted to do, but it felt natural and it didn't resolve the whole thing. This wasn't getting rid of the blue light in the sky because, sure, they destroyed the locusts, the biasin, but there's still locusts all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, they had been migrating to different continents and whatnot. So it didn't stop the problem. It just set up this, like, killer um, series of images and all these cool shots of the dinosaurs and the scorched planet and add some peril for our heroes. And then, you know, you, you, you set up your big final confrontation. Like, honestly, that's the only place that I would kind of knock at some points because I was just like, really? You have the Jurassic World ending all over again yeah. with <laughs> how you played this? With the, yeah, the Giganotosaurus <laughs> and the Thesiosaurus and the T-Rex. And it's like, ah. And I don't know, like, I personally thought that's kind of cool if, this T-Rex that has been unstoppable since the first movie finally dies if they had put her to rest. But at the same token, I'm the only person that seems to feel that way because everyone's like, nope, 
she I'm needs that guy. to yeah <laughs> she needs to ride or die and yeah the kid was like i was so scared that they were gonna kill her off but thank goodness they left her alive so i was like okay it's i was fine. the same way like it's when they fine. had their first yeah. encounter with the giganotosaurus i was like yeah. oh no they're going jurassic park 3 spinosaurus right where that was a site B T-Rex, but that he just like wipes the floor with this T-Rex to establish dominance and to tell the audience that this is a bigger, badder dinosaur. And they just like walk away. I was like, whew. And then they have that scene where she he is very much looking dead. And then the eye opens. It's like, boom. I'm like, yes. And then that very, <laughs> very on the nose, like this, she walks through the circle and you can see like it's like, the symbol of the, you know, stuff like that. I'm okay with, you know what? You want this big triumphant return of the T-Rex. That's why in Jurassic Park 1, the T-Rex reemerges at the end of the film because Spielberg stepped back and said, look, people want to see the T-Rex be triumphant here. This becomes like somewhat of the hero or the big focal point of the film. And you didn't see the T-Rex ever again after that initial scene, I guess with the Gallimimus. And so her coming back into that and being the savior of the Raptors was a big moment they put in because they felt they needed it. And this is it too. Yes, it is very, it's a mere image really of the Jurassic World ending. But, you know, stuff like that, I think because of the franchise and because of what it is, I I, I just soak it all up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I didn't mind it. Like that was the, uh, like the movie just had such a creativity to it. And you could really feel them trying to, push the boundaries of what the franchise had done before and what contemporary blockbusters do. And so that was the only place that I thought that they rested on their laurels a little bit, but totally understandable. Like it was a massive moment for the fans, right? So that you and my kid walked away and was like, yep, that was the right decision. Yeah. And the exact <laughs> way that needed to go down. Uh, I'm good with it. Yeah. yeah. And like, let's talk about some of the dino moments, you know, cause you know, as we've weaved our way through, some of the narrative and some of the the story and this the more fundamental story there's also a lot of dinosaurs in this film you go to the original jurassic park film i think there's like 11 minutes worth of dinosaurs in that two-hour movie and this feels like it's completely on the other side we get so many big spots with very very diverse set of dinosaurs in here which i absolutely love like some of my favorite moments in here is the what i'm going to call the dimetrodon theme park ride you know, I've wanted to yes. see a Dimetrodon since I had that green action figure from 1993. They get it in here, but it literally feels like a theme park ride where you're like you're walking through, and then one pops like roar. <laughs> it was just, it was very tropey, but I feel like it had to have been on purpose like that to emulate one of those old Disney rides or Universal rides or even like your cheap theme park dinosaur rides where it's like boom, here's a dinosaur. I just thought that was so cool. And the one thing I got to throw out there is the scene where they're in the like black market dino market. Uh-huh. I, I thought that was really cool, but the Carnotaurus, so the, the black and red or black and orange dinosaur that comes out, the one of the two bigger ones is roaming around inside there. To me, in my mind, this is them canonizing the 94 figure that I bought a couple years ago during the pandemic for an unreal amount of money for a rubber dinosaur. But it has the exact same look to it, the color. And I was like sitting in my, my seat being like, I cannot believe whether or not it was on purpose or not, but I think it was that they actually did this. Like it's my favorite dinosaur toy almost of all time. But the fact that it makes appearance in this film I was like, yes, come on. Like it was so good. Yeah, no, that was sweet. And I just like the the Metrodons are an interesting choice because they're just like a pre-Cambrian, I think. Yeah, they're like, they're not even part of like like, the the Mesozoic era. Like they're like nowhere near it. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're like the proto-dinosaurs, but they're just like, you know what? Every crappy gift shop since the beginning of time has sold T-Rex, Triceratops, and for whatever reason, Demetrodon, plastic awful action figures so we gotta throw it in there man it's it's part of that original 93 line there's a green one where you put the back leg and it mouth like its mouth opens it's never mentioned in a book or anything but for some reason it's there it's got a cool look to it yeah so like yeah that was awesome i like the the trosseraptors were were whatever i guess they were supposed to be 
an allegory for Owen's Raptor squad where without uh, proper rearing and with some unnatural attach or enhancements, that's what those Raptors would become type of thing. But um, so they were whatever, but I love the Pyro Raptor. Like I'm, I'm one of those guys, like I'm very much uh, someone who believes science and what scientists tell us. But uh, except when it comes to feathers on dinosaurs, I'm like, yeah, I know that they were probably a thing, that they were a thing. However, I don't want to see them in movies. They make dinosaurs less cool. However, the pyroraptor I thought was sweet looking. And I loved what they did with that, with it kind of going underneath the mm-hmm. ice and swimming around and then having that big leap up. And and I thought the... Uh, length of time that they had any of the dinosaurs on screen was perfect. Like it wasn't too quick where you felt like you didn't get to see them showcased at all. But at the same time, there wasn't anything that really, really dragged like uh, the Atrociraptor chase. Maybe a little, but if you're going to nitpick. Yeah. But at the same time, they were kind of using it as just something to, um, run concurrently to uh to claire and um uh kayla getting on that plane and Mm -hmm. getting that all sorted out and filling in her backstory a little bit and whatnot so yeah i was okay with it to be honest and it it, you know it it helped kayla become a bit of a badass with her having that take off and all that kind of stuff and owen on a motorcycle so ah it is what it is and it's exactly it. You know, I can see people not liking or loving that, you know, Owen is a bit of a Terminator in in most of this franchise. But, like, I just buy into it. This guy's a badass, sure. Like, why not? Like, he can ride a bike after being chased by dinosaurs onto a, a uh, an airplane that's running down a run. You know what I mean? Like, sure. You write it down, you break it down, and it doesn't make sense, but you also have to remember we're in a movie where the world is being taken over by dinosaurs and giant locusts due to genetic manipulation. You have to suspend some belief when you get into it all. Oh yeah. Well, like not that many months ago, people forgave Tom Holland for doing all that stuff in that uncharted movie. Right. So (laughs) these things just are what they are, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, they're not historical documents exactly one thing too that about your your dino and feather stuff there's actually a throwaway line in this movie about why they don't all have feathers right um them filling in the code with different stuff took the feathers away for whatever reason um because i think when they had that little little dinosaur in the glass case and they're like oh we're doing dinosaurs without filling in the gaps and it comes out it's got like feathers or like light fur on it or whatever um, and so that's kind of their explanation as to why the dinosaurs look the way they do in the Jurassic Park films is that because they fill it with frogs or a Komodo dragon, I think was one of them. And, yeah. uh, they just, that, that's how they came out. <laughs> well, and it's fine. It's fine. We, I think dinosaurs with feathers is like a last 20 years type of thing. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, we have generations of dinosaurs looking completely different in people's mind's eyes. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we get some legacy, another legacy dinosaur coming back here in the Dilophosaurus, getting a couple of big moments in the history of the Barbasol can coming full circle there with Dotson. We've got Dotson here. I'm, I'm quite pleased yeah. that he had his hand back on that from Jurassic Park 1 after handing it off to Nedry because it's Dotson that Nedry meets with in Jurassic Park 1. You're doing the movie canon and he's back here. He's got that Barbasol can. And he finds a, a similar fate to Dennis Nedry with the Dilophosaurus, which I thought was kind of a nice bookend for for that story. Yeah, no, it was cool. It was cool. And I loved how they built to it, too, with him, like, walking through the tunnel and the vents going off and, you know, that they took their time with it. And, and there was just so many scenes that they just took their time with uh, to give the dinosaurs a bit of a showcase and add a bit of um, anticipation and a bit of drama to the scenes. And yeah, like even like they did it with herbivore dinosaurs too, like the Therizanosaurus with its claws and whatnot. Like you didn't know what it was going to do with Claire. And I thought it was kind of neat how they decided to make it essentially blind type of thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, 
it was I, I just appreciated all that kind of stuff. Like I say, a, a large reason that I love the Lost World as much as I do is that you just get to see so many different species yeah. of dinosaurs running around and doing their thing. I love that, man. That stampede scene is something else. Blew my brain yeah. apart when I saw that in 97. Like, that's the, one of the coolest scenes in the whole whole franchise is mm-hmm. that piece of it. It's just literally because of that. And, you know, when you step back and look at this, this film and this saga, if you will, it, it's got a lot of really interconnected pieces and interwoven stories. And there's a lot of big spectacle to it, but the poster and the, the film itself, the tagline was the epic conclusion to the Jurassic era. And although from a nomenclature standpoint, like in terms of geologic time scale, it's not the air, a Jurassic era isn't actually a thing. So they're talking about, I think the the characters themselves, the era of filmmaking inside of the Jurassic franchise. But this, does this, does this actually conclude it? Do you think? Does this conclude the Jurassic era? Does it actually end? Are we in a different place than you expected to be come the end of this film? Uh, well, the $145 million opening weekend tells me that this is not the last <laughs> we've seen of <laughs> Universal making dinosaur movies uh, with that Jurassic banner. But uh, yeah, like I, I do think that it is the conclusion of everything started with that first movie. And while it was an extremely slow burn to get here through Jurassic Park, Lost World, Jurassic Park 3, and then an absolute sprint from World, Fallen Kingdom, and Dominion, it is just one long, fairly well-knit saga across six films. Like, I'd argue that there's more synergy and more connectivity with those six films than many other multi-film franchises Mm -hmm. like yeah i I thought it i thought they did a good job and we're kind of where we maybe wanted to be come the conclusion of this movie with dinosaurs in the wild still and just being a thing but i don't know that you have a full movie there but you certainly open up the door for like a massive amount of storytelling with it like you could just do a story about a small town and how they're going to survive with dinosaurs destroying the environment mm-hmm. around them or poacher stories versus conservationist stories or you could, you could do a stranger things type of show with just a bunch of kids and how they deal with the perils of dinosaurs living around their small town type of thing. And off you go. So, yeah, man, like, it, it, I, I'm right there with you in the sense that this feels like a conclusion of this one big story, but you also leave yourself a universe to play with at the end of the day. There, mm-hmm. This this doesn't have a solid, all the dinosaurs are dead, or we're going to ban genetic manipulation in, in all its form. It doesn't have, like, a conclusion like that where this is actually resolving all of the issues, right? Like, Fallen Kingdom arguably almost has a more conclusive end to the quote-unquote dinosaurs than this movie actually does. Uh, we don't quite get there. Of course, at the end of Fallen Kingdom, they open it up and here you go. But destroying the island in Fallen Kingdom and destroying a lot of the dinosaurs really does a lot of work there to getting you to the point where you're kind of resetting. Um, but this just leaves it open-ended, which I think does tell you that they're going to tell more stories. Uh, but it could be very very different stories i've been pitching for a long time let's let's cordon off half of america and have a family of kids or whomever trying to cross the no-go dino zone and this is what happens when you're inside of it right and we've seen things even like sweet tooth take that for an example right where you have a mm-hmm. man and a, and a and a boy passing through very treacherous territory with different things in front of them and they have to overcome all these obstacles you could do something very much like that that doesn't involve the bios and doesn't involve the genetic piece of it because they've kind of told that story or at least they've played that through as to getting them hammering home the point of of the narrative around that and what michael Crichton was ultimately saying all the way back in the late 80s about the genetic power and where we could be going here in the not too distant future. And so that piece of it feels concluded, but the whole dino story is going to continue. 
whether they change the name to Cretaceous or whether they change it to something completely different. I think there's a universe to continue to build here. I would love to see a live action show on Netflix where you are doing that anthology type stuff and just exploring the world of, of dinosaurs. And so it, it all works for me. You know, I'm a huge Jurassic fan. This has been a big part of me as far as the franchise for my entire life, whether it's collecting or guiding eventually where I went to my career in some capacity. It, it's, it's a big meaningful end to the saga for me. And I, and I, I honestly, I walked out with a big dumb smile on my face and I said to myself, you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed this film and everything it delivered for me and how it wrapped up a lot of it, even with the original cast. You know, there's there's some score notes in there that just really ring true in my heart, right? When you hear that little twang of the John Williams score in there, especially when they show Alan Grant for the first time, it's it's there, it works. It, it does all the right things from a nostalgia perspective and it tells and wraps up a, quite a grand story while also having a very loud, bombastic dinosaur spectacle, right? You know, we, we needed those pieces of it. And it's all in this film. And I can, like you said, I can see where people might have issues with it. But to me, it's it's exactly what it needed to be. And it's exactly what I wanted it to be. Yeah, like it, it's thoroughly entertaining and it's well made. It does have its narrative shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Like um, like the Wanda Wise's Noemi character kind of comes out of nowhere and they don't really build her out too much coming into it or coming out of it. It's just like, we need this badass who can fly helicopters and all these other things that nobody else can do. So that's going to be her. And she's going to risk life and limb to be part of this. Like it would have been kind of cool if she was um, working with the other gentleman who was with Dr. Malcolm within bias and kind of thing. And so there, there are bits that I think, didn't completely work but at the same time on the whole like it's a pretty solid blockbuster that actually has a bit of thought and heart and care and a few layers to its narrative so yeah i i i can't fault it like if i was to point fingers as to why it maybe didn't get the reception that they were hoping for it probably lies with universal's marketing department because mm-hmm. I think there is something I there is something to be said about people being disappointed about what they were sold versus what they're walking into. And that's not really something I put on the director because it's like he's crafted a story and it's the story that he's been empowered to tell. So that's cool. But it's you gotta be honest with people as to what they're walking into. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're going to be received a little bit better. Like it kind of goes like another example is like kind of Batman versus Superman. Like they sold it one way, but then you walk into something else in the theater type of thing. And if you come in thinking you're going to see this bombastic superhero spectacle, but you get this high concept drama, you, you're probably going to walk away disappointed unless they convince you otherwise and the same thing with this movie where it's like here's a story about how dinosaurs are going to be affecting us in our day-to-day lives and all these crazy things happening to people all over the place and it's like well no it's actually a story about yeah they're here and we're just dealing with it but this underlying threat and the consequences of the tampering with genetic power that we established in the first movie type of thing right Mm -hmm. so I can kind of see that argument but by the same token, like I think they did a phenomenal job on the whole with the pieces that they were given. Like I was never, I was never bored. I was yeah. never, yeah. <laughs> you barely have any time to breathe in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was never really rolling my eyes. I was very rarely was I thinking like this or that is unnecessary. And yeah, uh, on the Jurassic spectrum, like I think it's one of their stronger films, and I was thoroughly entertained from mm-hmm. beginning to end. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, lay, lay on me a uh, a rating, a letter grade for this one. A letter grade. Uh you know what? Like for the sheer spectacle and entertainment factor. Um, yeah, like I, I'd probably give it an A minus. Like it. it it does have its shortcomings here and there with some of the, when they get into that kind of mindless blockbuster 
space. Um, I, I can't give <laughs> I can't give anything over an A minus, and and in fairness, it's probably a B B plus. But like the stuff to love in this movie, I just loved so much that it's it's touching that A space, and I don't care because it's my review. So there it is, man. There <laughs> it is. I'm, I'm sitting at a B plus for this one. Um, it, there's there's not really much more I can say. If, if I'm going to knock it a tiny bit, I think there's times the CGI isn't as strong as it should be, given that they had an extra year to touch things up. There's some things that seem a bit shaky in there, um, specifically in the daylight in the early part of the film. But as a whole, man, I'm here all day for the Jurassic franchise. I want more of it. I really enjoyed this film for exactly what it was. And like we've discussed here, I think the one of the things that is missed in a lot of the reviews is this much larger genetic power narrative. I don't think it's being talked about on how well executed it has been across really the entire franchise. Yeah, maybe you miss it a little bit in two and three, but like you pointed out, through the whole world franchise, this has been an underlying theme, and it's subtle, and it's really brought to the forefront here, I think, effectively. And, you know, the like I said, the dinosaurs are just they kind of there right they they aren't the focal point they have been in any of the previous five films and i think that's kind of cool so yeah b plus for me on this one get out there and check it out guys it, it's it's a it's exactly what you want it to be and needed to be like you said carlos if you ignore a little bit of the marketing aspects of it but it is a fitting end to the jurassic era for sure yeah a minus cinema score too so i know that we're not alone i was yeah. I've never been as curious about what a cinema score is going to be come, I think, Saturday morning is when they usually drop what the what the polling is. But, yeah, I was fascinated to see what it was because I loved it so much. And um, the reviews just weren't reflective of that. And, yeah, it seems to have pretty strong word of mouth now. It's got a ton of rewatchability to it as well, I think. I think second, mm-hmm. third viewing, you're going to have just as much fun, but you're going to be picking up a little bit more here and there and enjoying the moments with the dinosaurs even more. Because like that's one thing too. Like There's a lot of moments with dinosaurs to consume across all this, and I think you'll appreciate things even like the, uh, the underground dinosaur dealership. I think on a second viewing, you appreciate a lot of what's going on in there a bit more. So, um, Well, yeah, and there's just like stuff to see again. Like just mm. flying along, it's like, oh, Dreadnoughtus. It's like, what? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <It's> so, <laughs> so good. So good. So there it is, guys. There's our, our discussion, our review of both Jurassic World Dominion and the first episode of Miss Marvel. And, of course, we've got another episode of Miss Marvel coming out this Wednesday. So as the time you guys listen to this, you might have consumed that next episode. We've got Obi-Wan, Stranger Things, Thor, Love, and Thunder coming up here. We've got a whole bunch of Ghostbuster announcements that we got to talk about next week. It's it's a wild time to be a nerd, and I'm so pleased that we got to sit here and talk about dinosaurs for you know 45 minutes or so in all this. And uh, Carlos, it's it's been an absolute pleasure tonight, and I can't wait to gush more about dinosaurs in the not too distant future when uh, when you get that Biosyn mod or whatever it is patch into uh, Jurassic World Evolution Two or whatever it is. Um, I've seen guys like Tom Jurassic going on about that, and so there's lots for you to do there as well. Oh, yeah, I've watched that trailer about four or five times. So I'm like, uh, that 30 bucks is going to be leaving my wallet, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, it seems like a pretty decent piece of DLC for that game. And I uh, I am ashamed to say that I've got more than my money's worth as far as play hours <laughs> from uh, the base game. So I'm pretty sure I can justify that. To be honest, I didn't buy it um upon hearing about it simply because i'm like i got work to do and i know <laughs> I guess, it won't happen it's not the pandemic anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly all right guys if you'd like to check us your opinion of dress world dominion miss marvel or anything else in the nerd space you can always email us at the nerd nerd at gmail.com you can find everything we do over the nerdroom.net the hunt is real and it's it's gonna pick up we didn't really get to our weekend nerd this week because we we kind of capped it off with these two things but i made a big purchase that i'll tell you about next week a really big purchase, and uh, that has some effect on uh, some discussions we had even last week about the existential crisis I'm having around collecting. And what else we got here? YouTube. I just threw up a a short video, a two three minute video of my brief morning at the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo all the way back in April. I finally had time to compose that together, 
So you can go over there and check that out. And we got some things planned in the not too distant future for the YouTube channel as well. So just type in the Nerdroom Podcast over on YouTube and Twitter. Handles are at the end of the episode. We're there a bit more sporadically, but you can find us every so often providing some commentary around things in real time, like Obi-Wan, Miss Marvel, Jurassic World Dominion, everything else from Star Wars, Marvel, DC, and beyond. So with all that being said, the Jurassic era now in the rear view mirror for the Nerd Room. I'm Tim. And I'm Batman. And thank you so much for entering the Nerd Room. This has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts Tim, Troy, Sanjay, and Carlos on Twitter at TheNerdRM, TroyTheBoy87, Sanjabi, and CDN Caped Crusade R. For more content from the Nerd Room, check out TheNerdRoom.net. And don't forget to subscribe to the Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you plug in. Use the hashtag WeTheNerd to keep up with the latest from the Nerd Room on Instagram and Twitter.